Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. Welcome, listeners, to the Engine Professional Podcast. We're back at it again here with myself, Steve Fox, and my co-host, Chuck Lynch. Chuck, what's happening today? Well, I, I think uh, these things date themselves a little bit. We know that these are recorded, but we're in the uh, massive winter event, I believe, that's uh, touched almost every part of the country, Steve. Uh, plenty of snow, cold, everywhere. Yeah, definitely looking forward to warm up. I think we got around 20-something inches here in Chicago. So that's enough. Uh, I'm ready for spring to come where we can get outdoors and do some fun activities. So hopefully that'll be happening soon. Yeah, I understand we're getting a teaser next week. Going to be a double nickel and then a snowstorm a couple of days later. Oh, that's <laughs> welcome to the Midwest. <laughs> well, we'll get started here. Uh, we have a special guest with us today, uh, Mr. Dave Hagen, who is our senior technician here at AERA. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks so much, boys. Glad to be here. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I've been around a long time. I've been with AERA 32 years now, and uh, well, loving every minute of it. We uh, seem to get into a lot of different things been a, a good job for me. Uh, I had uh, 19 years in a machine shop up in northern Minnesota before I got started here. So I made the big move to Chicagoland area and found out that uh, climate and everything wasn't much different than where I was in northern Minnesota. Maybe not quite as cold, so that was on the plus side. I remember the very first uh, winter I was here, it was uh, 62 degrees on the 20th of uh, December. And uh, pretty nice for Christmas around here. So anyway, I enjoy the job and look forward to continuing on for a few more years. Good to hear. Just a quick question, Dave, how'd you get in started in the industry? Did, um, was the shop you working in looking for somebody or? Well, we sort of created a position. Uh, I was one of those kids that was uh, taking apart his bicycle, took apart my dad's lawnmower, uh, the lawnmower engine, uh, just to see how it worked in that. And fortunately I was able to get it back together and it, it started and run after that. So he kind of saw that I was interested in, uh, the mechanics end of things. And I, uh, started out with, uh, um, some classroom training at, at the uh, high school level and all the industrial arts classes and that sort of thing. So like to use my hands and I went on to, to school for, couple of years in the machine shop end of the world and got uh, started with a uh, <clears throat> auto parts store that took me on for half the day as part of my uh, secondary uh, uh, school training. So after they uh, saw that, they kept me on because they needed people. We were in, in a small uh, shop. It was just uh, two of us. I did all the uh, cylinder head work and all the engine assembly uh, most of the time. So it was uh, 
something where I had an opportunity to go to AERA because of uh, uh, the company starting a, a tech department, and that was what, back in 1988. Um, they didn't have a tech department, but people would call, and well, the people that were there were, were not necessarily machine shop people, hadn't worked in a shop. So I uh, was the first tech, uh, full-time tech uh, at AERA, and wasn't long after that, I believe only two years where we, we hired another one um, after we started getting 25, 30 calls a day that uh, just was a little bit for what, too much for one person to handle. So decided that I was single at the time. I, I moved and got here, decided that it was not that much different uh, climate-wise. Uh, and I, I found that standing on my feet for 10 hours a day uh, wasn't missed a bit. I was able to sit in the chair and that sort of thing. <laughs> my hands were cleaner. It was just somewhat an easier life, and I, I enjoyed it. So I've been sticking with it. Well, I hope nobody's knocking down our doors looking for a job now that you said uh, your hands are cleaner and your feet are better and all that stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it is is nice and comfortable. And actually, if I could go out and work in the yard and do the, the lawn and stuff, I, I put a pair of gloves on it. It's just nice to have clean hands again. Yeah, exactly. Well, great. Uh, again, appreciate you having it on. You're going to uh, be a great guest talking about our topic today. Uh, but before we get to that, we got some other industry news we want to talk about. And probably one of the biggest questions we're getting right now, Chuck, is trying to find parts. Uh, that's a big issue right now in our industry. True, Steve. Uh, <clears throat> one of the the biggest uh, things that we hear is, or that we get the feeling that people think, oh, the parts supply chain is just kind of a miss and we don't have parts on the shelf. But it actually goes deeper uh, in conversation with some of our manufacturing friends that, you know, to the point of raw material. Okay, so we're not being able to get the materials to cast pistons so we can machine pistons, so we can ship pistons or valves or whatever that may be. So it, it's definitely much deeper than just supply chain gaps. It's uh, from manufacturing, filling supply chain, distribution, warehousing. So it, you know, it's not something that's gonna fix itself in the next 30 to 60 days. But uh, there is a feeling that there is improvement in, in the fact that at least uh, more people are back to work in a steady state. Yeah, the, we've had a lot of calls on the tech line, guys looking for parts and, you know, just worried that they can't get parts. It'll eventually get back to normal when that'll be, you know, like Chuck said, it won't be 60 or 90 days from now. It's going to take a little bit of time, but it will, it will happen eventually. Right. I think people are just going to uh, <clears throat> maybe reassess, you know, some some of the really old parts. Uh, where do we go with that type of stuff? Because a lot of projects came of COVID and it's probably made people think about hmm, maybe I I want to specialize in this type of component for the market or this type of component. You know, some of the boutique type of uh products out there that uh it i think a lot of things change you know we had conversation about 
virtual doctor visits, uh, will that stuff go away? Um, but I think there's going to be some changes that will be with us from here on out. Absolutely. Well, since we're talking today, um, our topic actually is on diesel engines. We actually have a nice webinar coming up uh, from Cass Choate from Choate Engineering and Performance. And Cass will be discussing some of the common failures with the Ford 6.7 Power Stroke diesel engines and what tips shop owners can apply to fix them. That webinar is scheduled for Tuesday, March 9th at noon central time. And you can sign up uh, through our website, I believe, or we will be sending out an e-blast on that. So if you're not on our e-blast program, please do sign up on our website. You just fill out the form, sign up your email, and you'll be on the list and get that information coming to you. Yeah, it should be a great presentation. Cass has really made a, a big splash into the industry. Um, he's a hardworking, uh, very dedicated young man, and uh, we're glad to have him. Absolutely. It'll be good. Um, very successful at what he's doing and very busy. So I'm glad he's taking the time out of his busy schedule to uh, do that webinar. It'll be a great one. You guys might mention the uh, webinar that he did on the 6 liter and the 6.4. That was very, very popular. Yep. Good call, Dave. And you can find that on our YouTube page. Um, just search YouTube for AERA Engine Builders and you can see all of our webinars listed there. Since we're talking about diesel engines, one of our preferred providers uh, that we have here at AERA is called SAV Transportation. Uh, they have a freight savings plan with AERA. It's a simple to use multi-carrier platform, lift gate and residential fees as low as $10, uh, full value insurance option, and they have a core return platform, which makes core returns very simple. If you have any questions or would like some information regarding the freight savings program through SAV Transportation, you can reach out to Josh Reed. His email is josh at savtrans.com or give Josh a call at 763-489-4258. Let him know that AERA sent you and he'll be happy to uh, discuss his freight saving transportation uh, savings with you. So before we get into our big topic today, we actually have our annual or our tech bulletin that we talk about. And Dave, I'll probably turn that over to you. We actually have one on a pack car we're going to discuss today. Okay, so pack car. How many people know what pack car is? Pack car is a uh, a trucking company or company that sells trucks. Okay, well pack car is actually owned by the DAF uh, company in Germany. They make huge engines and truck engines, all kinds of different engines. So a little bit different uh, style of an engine that has been in this country uh, before. Um, they've got some different ideas as far as how to how to fix their engines. Um, AERA publishes bulletins uh, weekly on uh, different, different engines. And this one, we've got one technical bulletin 2927. And it's on pack car liner adjustment for their MX-13 diesel engine. Um, before I get into the bulletin, when pack car first came to this country, uh, North America, um, they started using Cummins engines and they use Cummins engines still in their smaller models, but uh, they introduced the uh, MX-13, which is a 13 liter diesel uh, in 2010. 
Well, if uh, you're at all familiar with diesel engines, most of them use a repairable, uh, replaceable cylinder sleeve. Um, so in chassis, that's somewhat an easy operation if uh, there's no other wear. Well, the bulletin uh, we're working with here is, is one uh, for liner adjustment. PACCAR has decided to use a different method of adjusting the liner height. Now, liner height is uh, how far the liner sticks above the cylinder block to clamp the, the head gasket, um, if you're familiar with that at all. Most companies, Cummins, Caterpillar, a whole bunch of the others, they would use a repair of uh, machining the counterbore uh, and putting a shim in with the uh, liner to get to the exact height of uh, liner protrusion. So PACCAR has come across another method that they, they want you to use a uh, uh, different thickness of liner flange. So that means your parts inventory goes up. Uh, they have a standard, then they have a uh, 0.40 millimeter, 0.040 millimeter taller, 0.25 millimeter and 0.50 millimeter taller flange. So basically, we're working with uh, two thousandths, ten thousandths, and twenty thousandths taller than the original. Now, this, of course, is going to require that uh, the counterbores are, are uh, uh, cut to that additional depth to accept the liner. Uh, they also have tooling that you can do this in chassis um, if the block isn't out for it, for other other work. Of course, the machine shop can do that a lot easier in a, in a machine shop setting with uh, the modern equipment that they have now. So there's several cautions that we uh, uh, express when we're, we're uh, mentioning these things, just so the machine shop and people are aware of this additional method of uh, adjusting uh, in that you might might get one of these blocks in that already has a 20,000 shim in it well don't be lost uh we can we can still repair them many shop, shops are using their own shims to uh adjust things back to standard um a lot of a lot of work uh done that way in the in the diesel box um we've got one company in uh, pennsylvania ruts machine shop they've got a guy that actually will go out in the field and uh um do the machine work in the in chassis and, and get the liner height adjusted correctly. Now, not for every shop, but if you got uh, personnel that can get out and do that and some portable equipment, uh, a very good opportunity to get these diesels uh, back, get the blocks back to reusability. <clears throat> so that's 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 it on the. Uh, the liner repair it's just uh, making it another method known to uh some of the people out there um the diesel blocks they're they're generally always going to be repaired simply because they're way too expensive to buy a new one so if you were to just kind of touch base back as to a cause for that why you would need to have these different thickness liner flanges what would cause something like that dave well it's kind of a natural natural characteristic of a diesel engine it it's 
I'll just use the word vibrating or shaking a little bit more uh, than other engines. So you got this metal fretting. Uh, when you bolt it all together, it isn't moving, but it starts moving as the engine is operated. And the longer it operates, the more this wear is going to going to going to start. Um, the the compression, the the amount of compression on the liners and everything, it, it's just something where they are really rattling almost it it's it's different than a non-sleeve block well very good information on that bulletin and like dave says we have several bulletins that we 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 have done for diesel and gas engines and like dave said we send out a couple bulletins each week in our e-blast so if you do sign up for our e-blast you will be able to receive those bulletins as well now, moving on to our big topic today, which is diesel engines, and it's going to be a bit of history and today's diesel engines. Dave or Chuck, I'll throw it out to you guys. You know, how did the first diesel engine really come about? Well, I'll take it for a second here. Uh, diesel engines have been around for more than 100 years. The first diesel engine engines were used in the shipping industry. Um, in 19, or I'm sorry, in 1898, Rudolf Diesel licensed his first new diesel engine to the Russian oil company that used it to uh, haul uh, oil in their ships. In 1903, the first oil tanker propelled by a diesel engine was launched in 1904, and the French built their first diesel-powered submarine. It took many years before we were adapted to the vehicle use, and shortly after that, the engines started showing up in the AERA machine shops, generally in the 50s. Most of the time they were doing a line boring center to center fitting of rods, decking blocks, decking heads, fitting and installing sleeves. Specialized shops started showing up in the 70s where they would also include full machine shops and uh, uh, fuel shops. So that's another avenue that all these diesel engines create the, the diesel fuel systems. Most of the manufacturers have their own reman uh, operations of uh, redoing engines and fuel systems and that. Um, Cummins even had a reman crankshaft program until about 1990. They dropped it due to too many warranty claims simply because, well, they may have been putting crankshafts in engines that really needed more work than just the crankshaft, like probably needed line boring and stuff like that as well. They dropped that uh, uh, in like 1990. And now when you go to Cummins to get a crankshaft, buy a crankshaft, it's either going to be a brand new crankshaft or a polished crankshaft that is still standard that has been in service. So a lot of the those cranks, uh, I wonder if they were welded. Um... You know, there's, you have to go through a lot of operations to bring a crankshaft back. You know, does it have an induction hardened radius? Uh, is the radius the same size? You, you know, the, some of the conversations we get into on the tech line, I just took a call recently about the Isuzu Duramax crank. Hey, those things are gas nitrided. Um, where can I get that process done? So when they engineer some of those things that it can be super crucial to the shaft um, that's definitely something to take into consideration as 
when it comes to resurfacing or replacing the crankshaft. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure in the Cummins program that they were doing some straightening, welding, and anytime you're welding on a shaft like that, um, it may or may not, uh, depending upon how much it may or may not be a good idea. Um, people need to realize that the, the crankshaft in an engine and the bigger the engine and the longer the engine is, um, the more stress is on that crankshaft. It's really like a spring in there. It, it wants to jump out of there the whole time it's running. And um, not all crankshafts that have been, uh, suffered damage are, are repairable. That's, that's, that's a given. I got to back up a little bit here um, <clears throat> just to when you first started there, 1898. So that's a hundred and almost 130 years that the diesel engine's been around. I don't know if some people think it's been around longer than that or shorter than that, but that's a pretty long time. Well, Rudolph gets the, the credit for supposedly uh, inventing the idea. Uh, if he was the very, very first, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't researched that myself, but. Uh, there were probably others uh, uh, dabbling in uh, some sort of new fuel. Right. And a little uh, trivial stuff I, in, in a book that I have uh, actually was talking about that Rudolph played with uh, coal as being a fuel. Uh, they, they ground the coal, coal into a very fine dust and still the intent was to use the high compression ratio to superheat the air and then spray the coal dust in and get your combustion event and lubrication. I'm sure there's tons of reasons why, why that wouldn't work, but you, you take a look at that, that whole premise. That's how some of the coal burning fuel plants with the best emissions output actually function. So instead of taking lump coal and throw it in a big burner, they actually grind it into like, baby powder consistency and and put it in to, into the burner systems to uh to make electricity so he may be behind the idea of that it's well way back there were just as smart smart as people as there are now i mean we're, we're into computers and everything like that but there were people uh hundreds of years ago i mean that's how we've gotten to where we are and the engines, the diesel, and now our newer uh, uh, direct-injected engines uh, for gasoline. They're just technology evolving continuously. Yeah, which kind of brings us to the today's diesel engines where, you know, tolerances back in those early diesel engines were probably, eh, maybe not as tight as they are today. Yeah, yeah, I would say the tolerances for the newer diesels uh, for some of the spots are are quite a bit tighter. Um, piston clearance being one of them. We used to have eight, nine, ten thousand piston clearance. Well, many modern diesels are down to two or three thousandths, uh, uh, just depending upon the engine, of course. So um, they've tightened up clearances on well, most of the uh, specifications for all of the diesel engines. The uh, emissions that they produced 50 years ago, 100 years ago, that has just gone away. I mean, you see diesel cars running on the, on the street all the time, and they're quiet. They don't smoke. They have a lot of power. 
they're they're really quite economical. Um, they're getting all the power they can out of that uh, that fuel. Chuck, I'll kind of ask you. Uh, with those tire tolerances, you think that's more, I mean, obviously a lot of it has to do with emissions. Um, but obviously I would think some of that has to do with material changes over the years. Right. You take a look at how heavy the old stuff used to be, you know, it was um, big parts. Even even smaller displacement engines had very heavy parts. Uh, say, a two. let's look at a 253 Detroit. You know, it's two cylinders, 53 cubic inches per cylinder. And you look at the parts, they were extremely heavy. Uh, the combustion event in diesel is very violent compared to what would happen in the lower compression ratio gasoline engines. Uh, but now they have the ability to take, you know, we, we refer to high speed diesels. They have the ability to uh, do multiple injections during the combustion event so there may be a a warming injection and then you get your primary power injection and there's an injection to cool the cylinder back down after the combustion event is actually happens uh in like cummins they referred to like the split shot up to seven injection pulses per combustion event um it's pretty amazing and and I know that some of the diesel engines now you can barely hear them. And in the mid nineties, it sounded like a bucket of bolts at best. <laughs> so we've evolved really, really fast. And, you know, you take a, take a look at a common compression ratio. Uh, Dave and I were talking about earlier, what 17 to one for diesel engines, Dave, and you have the Ford EcoBoost gas burning engine, um, which is even turbocharged in some of the, you know, some of these late gas direct and directed applications are 13 to one. So close together, but still miles apart. Right. And we just uh, learned of another uh, a new engine from Volvo that's uh, using a, uh, a diesel and natural gas combination. Um, they use a uh, uh, diesel uh, pre-spray to get the ignition going and it's turned over to injected uh, natural gas. So supposedly there's a cost savings there is some of their reasoning and compression ratio on that is 17 to one. Yeah, it's interesting. We had the conversation when we were on with uh, Jay and Keith on Parts Counter Gurus uh, talking about how stuff comes from the performance side of the world and makes its way into the uh the automotive production environments and our performance guys you know with a propane injection water injection things of that nature they've been doing that at the on pulling trucks and tractors and stuff for many years and here you see this as a is a uh an opportunity to integrate fuels multi-fuels in day-to-day -day production engines so that's what you're mentioning is a a road tractor type of engine, correct? This is uh, over the road. Yeah. Will be <clears throat> million mile or type engine stuff. Long haul buses as well as uh, anything that's going to be on the road for a while. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite interesting. <clears throat> kind of playing off that, Chuck, you know, going from the automotive world to 
I'll call it the diesel world. Uh, back in the day, you know, trying to find parts that were oversized or undersized uh, was pretty difficult, I think, at times. But now I think it's evolved so much that a lot of the aftermarket companies are just offering that now. Absolutely. Uh, cam bearings, uh, Durabond. I know Interstate McBee's got some coming stuff, right, Dave? Uh, but the, the salvaging, like connecting rods, the plus two, plus four oversized OD bearings, uh, some parts are definitely more difficult to to salvage, like, like a crankshaft or, or whatever. Uh, but yes, uh, as we started out with, with that bulletin, different liner flange thicknesses, uh, shims have been around a long time, but you know, a different, a, just a different strategy. Maybe it makes it a little easier to, okay, this is the part number for this kit. And maybe that extra liner thick or flange thickness on that liner helps keep things a little easier to, uh, standardize for that particular product. But, but absolutely. Um, the very common in the diesel world injector sleeves that have different thicknesses, uh, glow plug sleeves. Uh, I remember the 6064 or the 60 for sure. Uh, that was pretty unique in that they had the uh, different glow plug sleeves to, to service to set to salvage that particular head. Yeah, like you say, there's many parts suppliers out there. I know Chuck had mentioned a few, um, you know, like Maxi Force. Uh, they're a good one. IPD is a good one. Uh, there's several of them out there, um, and I'm sure we're missing a few, but there are a lot of companies out there that do offer diesel parts for these engines. Well, <clears throat> Chuck, you're mentioning uh, the oversizes and stuff like that, but it's also uh, something that the OEs for their own remanufacturing uh, possibilities that they've got the oversized OD cam bearings and uh, Cummins has a lot or Caterpillar has a lot of oversized OD uh, main bearings to, that they've uh, uh, offer as well. Um, I think the aftermarket has given the OE some ideas on other places to get o oversizes and, and uh, that's, that, that's why they've got more offerings now as well. Definitely these parts suppliers with these options of oversizes and all that stuff definitely helps the machine shop not have to go buy a new component. You know, like in the old days, if a rod bearing was spun or, you know, seized or something like that, they would have to go and buy new components to continue that engine just because there wasn't parts available for it. But with these parts suppliers evolving uh, and getting more and more um, options out there for parts, you can definitely save some of those components to where, you know, 50 years ago, you couldn't do that. Oh, yeah, not at all. There is very, very little of that uh, oversized outside diameter sleeves. All of the Detroits, well, they, they, they looked at that, but they had to have uh, more salvageability of that block. So there were those options and um, actually quite a few for all the, those uh, two, uh, two cycle engines. You've said it before and we will say it again, that it, it really appears that the engine rebuilders were the original green movement because we've always tried to utilize the raw materials that we had, salvage them 
and and continue continue to move them forward. It's just ev- it's evolved. You know, we've got a couple of members that we uh, work with very closely. What about the spray welding of the gasket deck surfaces? Uh, they spray weld the sides of the main caps so they'll fit tight in the registers, seal surfaces on crankshafts that allows them to be aligned board and salvage that big investment, you know, 3,500 Caterpillar, the big Waukeshaws and so forth. It's, uh, it, it's, it's interesting and it keeps it interesting you know, because we are crafty minded people in this industry and Hey, how can we make that, work again and again um, is key to this. And that's what drives the aftermarket to make these parts. And as you mentioned, Dave, makes the OE scratch their head, especially like a 3,500 cat. That's a, that's a huge investment. So you do what you can to try to get multiple life cycles. Right. The uh, repairs they have for the upper decks by uh, repairing the water ports up there to, to get the deck back to just like new again, that, a lot of shops are doing that, um, as well as the spray welding, like you're saying, on the top decks. And these are just great opportunities for machine shops to to get some of this work. I mean, you know, people think diesel engines, they think these big over-the-road semi-trucks or these motor graders off, you know, off-road equipment, uh, dump trucks, that type of thing. But actually, you know, there's some very small, compact diesel engines out there that could give a machine shop some great opportunities to make some good money. Exactly. And well, not only, uh, not so much in this country, but uh, in Europe, a lot of the uh, cars are diesel engines and, and uh, well, there's a lot of opportunity for, for shops over there. Uh, someday it may get um, more so in, in North America, but um, the other engines are, all over the place, lawnmowers, they've got all kinds of uh, diesel engines, the ground equipment at every airport, a lot of them are diesel engines. Um, they're really showing up in just about every every and anything. Uh, marine. You take a look at the calls that we take on the tech line. Uh, I think we said we're at about a 50-50 ratio of diesel to gas when we're loading new engine specs in into process, it's probably more heavily slanted to diesel as of late. Uh, yeah, they're definitely, that will probably be from the agricultural industrial um, applications, like you said, ground support equipment. There's, there's huge amounts of opportunity and that stuff will be the last to be replaced by electrification. Um, you know, there's a big push, a big movement to make electric cars, but you have to start somewhere. And that does, you know, give uh, a lot of opportunity for the industrial side for us to continue to support the diesel engine growing and evolving market. You said a bad word word there, Chuck, <laughs> electrification. I'm not sure we want to talk much about that other than there are so many diesel engines out there now let's just say a couple hundred billion of them or a billion of them even they're going to be still running in 50 years from now because there's just too much investment in them already um so people can take that uh as uh, uh they're not going away next year or in 2035 like gm says that they're going to stop uh making uh gasoline engines anyway 
they'll be around a long time. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I was listening to the radio the other day, and uh, one of the NASCAR channels was talking about, uh, you know, the always going to the the dreaded E word, we like to call it, uh, for us in our industry. And one guy says, that'll be the quietest race you ever listened to. (laughs) (laughs) But again, I don't see that happening. Uh, Not for those guys. I just, I just, I I don't. But like you say, the diesel engines will be around for a long time, I think, uh, when you get to some of the tractors and the agricultural equipment and that type of thing, it's going to be around for quite a while, as I do think the gas engine will be too. So, Agreed. Right. Yeah. You definitely have some folks that uh, um, are still investing in the, the IC world uh, in continued research and so forth. So yeah, we've got plenty of opportunity. Yeah, Chuck, I think you had mentioned this earlier about how how heavy back in the day some of these diesel parts now, but now I think that the weight of those have just been reduced so much that they can kind of increase engine speeds for these things. Right. That used to be a, a struggle for, well, when the B-Series Cummins first went in the Dodge pickup truck, you know, a low-speed diesel engine, they didn't have a lot to choose from in transmissions, you didn't need a governor to have you regulated at a at a particular speed with those. The truck wouldn't run that fast. But uh, as as need has come, you know, come along to clean up emissions again, you know, been able to uh, control injection systems and you know, multi speed transmissions and so forth. It, it's uh, quite interesting that you know you you see these diesel engines like 5,000 RPM uh, is no longer just a, a pipe dream for those. That's that's kind of commonplace. Uh, and then the manufacturing technology of pistons, so the strength that they can create in the piston just by the forging processes and so forth, uh, connecting rods, uh, just to talk, speaking of the uh, MX-13, took a call earlier today, uh asking hey how do i deal with these connecting rods because they're powder metal and they're only scored so it means i have to fracture the cap well realistically that's not that difficult to do he was he was like so where am i going to have to send my connecting rods to get that broken off actually you just put it on your your work surface you know put it on like a one by and you tap that in and they snap off it it (laughs) it's quite so it, it, yeah, it doesn't make sense. You're like that little scratch there is going to make that yep. thing break off of that powder metal rod. But yeah, uh, you know those technologies really evolved to what we're working on. Yeah, real quickly, the first time you do that, you got this rod that's a, a foot long. Let's just say, and you go, well, how, how can I break that or whatever? And you just go whap, and it's laying there on the on the bench. It's just kind of frightening that it breaks that easy. <laughs> Well, especially right. after you had to buy it and uh, yeah. <laughs> your customer bought it, and <laughs> you really don't want to mess it up. But like like Dave and Chuck said, it, it's really simple. Uh, so simple that you don't think it would work. I actually, I did caution him, though. I said, you know, think about this, though. It's a PM rod. You don't want that cap to fall and hit the ground and then mar up that surface. So 
you'll be back to buying it rot again. So just just be cautious. Put some egg crates around so you don't drop that new cap on the ground. Well, good deal. Uh, Dave, appreciate you coming on. Uh, you definitely informed us a little bit about the diesel engines, I think, as well as our listeners. So uh, glad to have you on, and we'll definitely have you on again here in the near future. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it and uh, look forward to another opportunity. If you would like a little more about who AERA is and what we do, please visit the website at www.aera.org. And you can also check out our magazine. We do a quarterly magazine of Engine Professional. You can find that information at engineprofessional.com. Chuck, what's our next issue uh, episode of the podcast going to be about? So next episode, we're actually going to delve into engine blueprinting. So we will touch on the facts, and I'm sure we'll talk about some myths of engine blueprinting. Anyway, that our goal is to clear that up and uh, and share some good knowledge, and we may have a special guest on for that as well. Yeah, that's a good topic to talk about because I think a lot of guys, um, <clears throat> as with anything in our industry, kind of interpret engine blueprinting in a lot of different ways. So I think clearing that up will be good. Absolutely. So if you'd like to listen to uh, of our past issues of the podcast or sign up for notifications of a podcast when it becomes available, please search on your favorite podcast listening platforms, AERA Engine Professional Podcasts, and subscribe to the podcast. Or you can head over to our website at podcast.engineprofessional.com. Again, I'd like to thank our guest today, Dave, for being on our podcast. We truly enjoyed having you. And from all of us here at AERA, thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast as we appreciate it as well. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, you can email Chuck and I at eppodcast at AERA.org. Chuck, got anything in closing? Be safe, and we look forward to doing more of these in the future. And until next time. Yeah, and if anybody's in the warm areas of the country, please send us some warm uh, weather. We'd, we'd love to have it here in the Midwest. <laughs> but like Chuck said, till next time and uh, happy machining. And thanks again for listening to our podcast.